Last week, we started in with John 17, uh, which is very commonly re- referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And uh, I've actually titled the series around this great chapter and this great prayer as the Savior's Prayer. Uh, I believe that it, it absolutely fulfills everything he came to accomplish and came to be as our Savior. And I think the prayer echoes that. Uh, so the Savior's Prayer is the title of this newest series that we started last week. We looked at verses 1 through 5 of John 17. And this prayer is absolutely the most significant prayer I believe, ever recorded from anyone in the Bible, but especially of Jesus. Um, Of the times that he actually prayed, this is definitely the one that stands out as the strongest, the the longest prayer, uh, the one that covers the most um, information and um, power. I mean, it's just incredible. It absolutely is amazing. And it's a prayer that teaches so much if we will let it. At the request of one of the disciples in Luke 11.1, when he said, Jesus, please teach us to pray. You know, we, we want to be taught. We want to know how we should pray like John did with his disciples. And so Jesus said, okay, yeah, I'll teach you. And he gave as a pattern the Lord's Prayer that many people know and, and refer back to. And, and it's a great pattern and model of prayer. And that prayer is one that we see him even following himself as he prays this great prayer in John 17. But this is definitely the Lord's prayer, the Savior's prayer, our great high priest prayer in John 17. And the theme of verses 1 through 5 that we jumped into last week, the theme was really all about glory. It was about glory. It was about Jesus asking for the glory that was his before creation to be restored to him, the glory that he amazingly laid aside to come and be our Savior, the glory that he didn't cling to and hold up and use to his advantage, as Philippians 2 tells us. And he was asking for the Father to restore that to him. And he was also, though, asking for his disciples to see that and to see that on display in a full, constant measure and constant way. And we talked about the fact that God is always glorified through our submitting to and carrying out his plan, his purpose, his will. And we see that most of all in Jesus, who understood that, who knew that the Father would be most glorified by the Son submitting to and and living out and, and obeying the Father's will. And the same is true for us as children of God through Christ. So that's where we were. Now, uh, this week, we're going to look at uh, verses 6 through 19. And really, this section, this middle section of the prayer and of the passage, you can really divide up into two clear sections, into two clear themes. And so, in verses 6 through 10, I just want you to be thinking about the theme of mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. A successful Savior. That's what we're going to see in the first section of this middle section, verses 6 through 10. The successful Savior and mission accomplished. So let's jump in together. Hopefully you have your copy of God's Word with you. And we'll be looking at um, John 17, starting in verse 6. Okay, Here we go. Jesus speaking again. And he says, I have manifested or revealed your name. He's talking to his Father to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. One thing that I love about this prayer 
And as it's recorded in this passage, the thing that just astounds me every time I go back to read this is knowing that the disciples are around Jesus. They're gathered there. They're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. It takes place moments after this prayer is done. They've already had their last Passover meal with the Lord Jesus, the first of the Lord's Supper. They're walking along. They're talking. They're hearing all these last words and last instruction from the Savior. And then he stops. And now they're listening in as he prays very intimately, very personally to the Father about all these things. And it's just so profound. But what's even more profound to me is the fact that this is recorded, that we're reading this, gives us the ability to do some time traveling. I mean, every time we go back to this passage, we're able to be right there with them. So I just I want to encourage and challenge you, use the imagination that God has given you that He wants you to have and that He wants you to use. And I want you just to, in any way you can, picture yourself there. Hear, hear these words, not just on the page, but as if you're hearing them yourself right there next to Peter, right next to James, right next to John. That's how it's intended. Because if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you're one of the disciples of Jesus. You're not one of the original 12, obviously, but you are nonetheless counted among his disciples. So listen with those ears. Listen with that mind. And as he says here in, in the beginning of verse 6 that, that Jesus has manifested the Father's name to the people whom the Father gave him out of the world, uh, that includes you and me. I mean, he, again, in the context, he's talking about the original disciples here, and, and that's, that has to be left intact. But by extension, and as we know from uh, the last part of this prayer, which we'll look at next week, he definitely, Jesus definitely includes us, you and me, in the group of disciples that he prays for. And so the fact that the original disciples, Jesus acknowledges that, that they actually belonged first to the Father and that the Father gifted them to his Son, that applies to you and me as well. This is, this is the, the great, mysterious, powerful, beautiful foreknowledge of God on display right here where he looks down through time and he looks through different people and he, he absolutely draws people to himself through his son by the working of his spirit. And so they already belong to him. And he says to his son, I'm giving them to you. I'm giving them to you. This is my gift to you, my son, whom I love. I'm giving you a people to be your own because I'm drawing them, and, and because even before the world began, as Ephesians tells us, that the Father loved us and made us alive together in Christ, in the counsel of His will and His amazing sovereignty and divine work that we can't ever explain somehow, mysteriously, but absolutely in all reality, all those who are in Christ, the Father already took to Himself, and then He gives to His Son. And that applies to you and me as well. And the other thing I want you to notice here and just marvel at and, and worship and, and just absolutely celebrate is the fact that this shows us Jesus will always be the full revelation of all that God is. Jesus will always be the full, the final 
the, the complete and all-powerful revelation of all that God is. At the very beginning, Jesus says, I have manifested, I have revealed your name to the people whom you gave me. That's why it's so important to draw people to Jesus. That's why it's so important that every message you hear, whether it's in this church or another, whether it's me bringing the message or someone else, it, when you're listening to a message maybe by podcast or you know, online or something, uh, when, you're, when you're reading a good Christian book, when you're reading a devotional, it's so important that everything we do as believers, as Christians, comes back to Jesus. And the reason that's so important is because Jesus will always be the complete, full revelation of all that God is. It's so important to bring everything back to Jesus. Um, Not just because He Himself is God. He is. And He's worthy of all honor and all glory and all focus. But even deeper than that, it's because Jesus will always be the only way to truly know God. Always. He's the great revealer of Him. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. That's talking about the Father. No one has ever seen God the Father. The one and only Son, who is Himself God and is at the Father's side, He has revealed Him. Uh, That's literally, He has explained Him. So look no further than Jesus to look at all the Father is. You want to know his heart? You want to know his mind? You want to know how he thinks or feels about things? You want to know his character? You want to know what he desires? Look to Jesus. You want to know what he calls you to be and calls you to do? Listen to the words of Jesus. It all comes back to him. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us this. God, again speaking of the Father, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Talking about the creation. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to know what it's like to see the, the divine glory on display like Peter and James and John did at the Mount of Transfiguration? Want to know what that would be like? You want to be able to say like Moses did to God, show me your glory. Just show me your glory, please. Look to Jesus. Look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Come and sit at Jesus' feet. Embrace all that he is. Then you'll be able to embrace and experience and know the glory of God because it shines in the face of Jesus Christ. The other thing I want to point out just in this, this first verse is the significance of the Father's name. The significance of the Father's name. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. When, when Jesus is talking about the name of the Father or, or when other people are referring to the name of God or when it's elevated in Scripture, whenever that's mentioned, the name of God, it's talking about His character and it's talking about His authority. All that is wrapped up in the character of God, all that is wrapped up in the nature of God, His mind, His heart, His purpose, His power, all of His attributes, his authority, his sovereignty, that's all tied to the name of God. And so that's another reason why we have to revere the name of God so much. That's why it needs to be kept high and holy and honored and exalted. That's why it should never be okay 
with us when the name of God is, is taken down and, and dragged through the mud. That's why it should never be okay for any child of God to have the name of God taken in vain, used in vain, uh, used in a disrespectful or irreverent manner. There's nothing funny about it. There's nothing light about it. It's a big deal because the name of God represents all he is. Everything he is is wrapped up in his name. That's another reason that Jesus made sure to, to start off in his model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, saying, Our Father who's in heaven, your name be honored or kept or regarded as holy. That's what we need to make sure that we're doing too. We need to keep the Father's name as holy. We need to revere it. We need to honor it. We need to lift it high and keep it exalted in all things because it reflects who he is. It's his very character on display. So as he says these things and he he acknowledges that all the disciples that are his were actually, they belong to the Father first, and, and he gave them uh, to Jesus. He says, they've kept your word. And then verse 7, he says this, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. In John 6, there's this um, incredible time where all these people who had been following Jesus for a long time, and they'd seen his miracles, and they'd been with him, and, and they had kind of been um, entertained by him and, and engaged with what he was saying and doing. He, he then starts teaching them about what it really means to be in him and to follow him. And he says, whoever would have life must eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. And everybody's like, whoa, wait a second. This is getting a bit much here. This is a little disturbing. Are you, are you talking about cannibalism? And they didn't get it. They didn't understand the connection, the spiritual point of all that. And the text says that from that point on, many left and followed him no longer. And so Jesus looks at, at his core group, his, his disciples, and he says, do you want to go also? Do you want to leave too? Peter speaks up, as he often does, and this is one of the times where he gets it right, and it's good that he speaks up, and he says, Lord, who else would we go to? Where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. And then he says, and we here, we have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. I hope that that's able to be said in all sincerity and truth by everyone that's here. I hope that this morning you can say without any doubt, without any pretense, without any hypocrisy, Lord Jesus, we have come to know and believe you are the Holy One of God. You are the only Savior. You're the only one that has the words of life for me. I hope that's been able to be said by you. I hope that's something that you're able to continually instill in your children. I hope that they see it modeled in your life, mom and dad. I hope you're able to talk about that with them and that you make that a priority. I hope that you're able to bring your children along in the same way so that they can say the same thing. That's what we're called to do, all of us. 
And we're definitely not called to keep that knowledge and that belief contained to ourselves. We're called to go out and share that belief and that conviction and live that out with other people so that they too can come and say, hey, we've been looking for all of the the things that we need and want. We've been looking for life. We've been looking for purpose. We've been looking for meaning, but we've been looking for it in the wrong places. Now we see in Jesus the one that we've been looking for in everything we've been searching for. And we too can say with you, we've come to know and believe you are the Holy One of God and there's no other. May that be true of us. May that be what marks our life. And that's what he said was true of the disciples. That's what he acknowledged before them. And wouldn't that have been encouraging for them to hear? Remember, he's praying to the Father, but as he's praying to the Father, he's instructing and encouraging and equipping and empowering all those disciples gathered around him before he goes to the cross. Think about what that would have done to their hearts. Think about how wonderful that would be to hear that affirmation. Wow, he he knows. He knows that we believe in him. He knows that we love him. He he just said we're his and and wow, there's that 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 confirmation. They would need that. They would need that in the coming days and hours and, and weeks ahead. It's encouraging to me to know that even in the times where I don't feel very connected to Christ, the times when I don't feel very much like a child of God, the times where I feel weighed down, bogged down by either the pressures and burdens of life, um, the weight of my own sin, you know, the, the weight of my own failure, um, the guilt that comes back for those failures that the enemy loves to use and hang over my head, the times where I don't measure up, the times where I just fail to deliver, where I don't come through at all, the times when my emotions betray me, the times where I'm not up here spiritually, but I'm way down here, all those times. You know what I'm talking about? You ever have those times? You ever have those moments, those days, those weeks? It's incredibly comforting to me to know that in those times, what Jesus said to his Father about his disciples there and then is what he says about me to his Father now. And it's what he says about you to his Father as well. If you're in Christ, if you've given him your life, if he is the Lord and Savior of your heart, your mind, your body, your life, your everything, then guess what? You're in him for good. And it doesn't matter what happens around you. It doesn't matter what your mind or your heart tells you. It doesn't matter what the enemy whispers in your ear. It doesn't matter how you feel, whether you feel close to God or not. If you're in Christ, then you're in Christ. And he acknowledges that. He knows that. The Father knows that as well. And that that position, that standing isn't going to change. It's not going to go anywhere. And I love that. I just love that. That draws, that draws great uh, fear out of me, and it, and it fills me with great encouragement. And I hope the same would be true for you. And then in verse 9, he says to the Father, I am praying for them, those that are mine, those that have believed in me, and I know they're believing in me, those that have trusted in my word and the word that I've given them, your word. They're trusting in that. They're believing in me. They, they know who I am. They believe that you sent me for them, and they're with me, and that's secure. And he says this, I am praying for them. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus prays for his own. 
He doesn't pray for the world, not because he doesn't care about them, not because he doesn't love them, not at all. He does love the world. He, he died for the sin of the world. He is desiring that none should perish. But what he does is make sure to be the great high priest for those that are his. He's not the great high priest for those who are not his. It's not how that works. He's not the the great high priest for the lost world that doesn't acknowledge his priesthood. Jesus is the great high priest for his people, for his church, for you and me, for the ones that acknowledge his priesthood, that know that we need the great high priest that he is, that can say with the author of, of Hebrews, isn't it great that we don't have a high priest who is not familiar with all of our ways, who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but who was in every way tempted as we are yet without sin. That's what we can all say as the church of Christ. That's what we should say. Thank you, Jesus, for being the high priest I need. And I know I need your priestly ministry over my life every day. I know I need you interceding for me at the right hand of the Father. So it's Jesus acknowledging those who acknowledge him and praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Verse 10 says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. There's this beautiful, wonderful sharing that takes place within the Trinity. It's existed for all of eternity. They share glory with one another. They share mutual love. They share respect. They share purpose. And what we see here is just an incredible thought that not only do we belong to Christ, we know that. I mean, if we're in Christ and we're his followers, we belong to him as, as those that are his, his body, his bride. We talked about that in the last series. We're his followers, his disciples. We know that. But what we see here what I just read, is the fact that if you're in Christ, you don't just belong to him, you belong to his Father. You belong to his Father. And you are not just loved by the Son, you are loved by the Father. You are not just kept and prayed for and ministered to by the Son alone, you are kept and ministered to and encouraged and valued by the Father also. They share us, the divine Father and divine Son, they share us with one another. It's a powerful and beautiful thought. And I want you to zero in on the last phrase of verse 10, where Jesus says, those that are his and those that belong to the Father as well, he says, I am glorified in them. And he's talking again about the original disciples there. That's the context. All the the 11 that are there gathered around him. And knowing who is around him, knowing what they're like, as we are able to see glimpses of all throughout the Gospels, knowing what they're going to continue to be like, even after all that they are hearing from him, all that happened in the upper room, all that happened along the way, leaving the upper room to the garden, all of hearing this magnificent prayer, after all of that, after all they've seen and heard and known from Jesus, knowing all they're going to continue to be, in terms of their limitations and weaknesses and failures, knowing that despite all they were and all they were not, that Jesus still said, I am, present tense, actively glorified in them, that tells me, and and I just want to 
tell you as well, and hopefully you'll be just as encouraged as I am, that perfection is not required for God to be glorified in your life. Isn't that something that just should be fire for your soul? Perfection is not required for God to be glorified in your life. If it were, He could not have said this. He would not have been able to say in all sincerity as He prayed to His Father, talking about those around Him, these men, these followers of His, I am glorified in them. Because they were anything but perfect. Anything but perfect. Perfection was as far away from them as it is from you and me. And yet, despite that, Jesus said that he was glorified in them. Why? How? It's because the glory that God gains from our lives has nothing to do with our ability. It has nothing to do with what level of righteousness we might have. It has nothing to do uh, with our measuring up to a certain standard. It has nothing to do with us getting all the uh, decisions that come our way right and all the answers right and, and being exactly what we should be, the perfect representation of the one that we're following. It doesn't have anything to do with that. God getting glory in our life is all because of His grace in our life. And that's what brings God glory. That's when, when the enemy looks at you and me and he's there at the, at the throne room of heaven, which we know from God's word he is, and he's accusing us. Uh, the Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. And we know that, that that's always been the case. It's what he did with Job uh, way back in the Old Testament. It's what he does all through history, all through time, through every people and every group. He's doing it right now. He's saying, would you look at them? Would you look at the mess they are? Can you believe they still chose sin after all you've done for them? Look at them giving themselves over to everything that's opposite from you. Look at them betraying you by their every thought. Look at them failing to measure up and deliver uh, all the the promises that they've made you. Look at them failing to to reach the standard that, that is holiness that you have set for them. Look at this. How can you love them? How can you still call them yours? They're taking your glory and they're rubbing it in the mud that they exist in. They're returning to the muck and mire of their sin again and again. You just need to be done with them. And he's right. The enemy, our accuser, is right on everything that he says. All that he brings in accusation to the Father about us. He's right. But because of Jesus... Because of his work on the cross for us, because of his blood shed for us, because of his righteousness being what we're wrapped in underneath the shedding of his blood, it allows us to be wrapped in the robes of his righteousness. Because of all that, and because of his high priestly work, and because of the fact that his glory is not diminished by our failing and our failure, he's able to look at the Father and address the accusation of the enemy and say, Yes, but all that's covered. All that's dealt with. All that's answered. All that's done away with. All that's been addressed. And so now all that remains is my glory working in and through them and on display in them all because of my grace. Because my grace is greater than their greatest sin. That's always Christ's answer. And that needs to be our answer as well. Isn't it good to know, too, that 
that Jesus sees us beyond what we are? That he sees us beyond our weaknesses and limitations and failures? Because he does. He already sees us as we will be. And to him, from, from his viewpoint, from his perspective, listen church, we are already glorified in him, with him in eternity. We're already there, according to his perspective. We're already sharing in his perfection. That's why he was able to say, I am glorified in them. Because even in our present, he uses us despite and in spite of our shortcomings, his grace overcomes and his grace overpowers all that we lack. And even our our sinful humanity, it can't keep him from gaining glory in our lives. It's a glorious thought. It's a glorious thought. Sees us where we are, uses us, overcomes our weakness and gets glory from that and sees us as we already, uh, according to him, he sees us as we're going to be and in, and in his viewpoint, that's what we already are. And it's a beautiful thing and it's a beautiful thought that, that it doesn't depend on us. So that's all mission accomplished. That's the successful Savior. He's saying, he, he's talking about everything in his ministry, in the lives of his disciples that led up to this moment. He's saying, I've done what I came to do. I, I revealed you, Father, to the ones you've given me. The ones that, that you called to me in your divine working, I gave myself to them. I revealed myself to them and I revealed you through me to them. I gave them your words and I gave them my word, which is your word, and they've accepted it. They've believed it. You know, it's exactly what Jesus said in John 14 uh, with Philip when he said, just show us the Father and that's enough. And he said, really, Philip, come on. I've been with you this long. You still say, show me the Father. You haven't grasped the fact that when you see me and you hear from me, you're seeing and hearing from the Father because my words are not just my words. They're my Father's words. So Jesus is praying into his Father and he's saying, I've done all that you wanted me to do. I've accomplished the mission of redemption and of glory and of revelation to these people you've given me. It's done. Mission accomplished. Now he shifts to the mission ongoing because he's a returning Savior. He's a successful Savior, but now he's, he's the returning Savior. And I don't mean returning to earth, to us, that's going to happen. And he will be a returning savior in that way. But I'm talking about because he was a successful savior, because his mission was accomplished, he's now able to be a returning savior back to the father's presence, back to the glory of heaven that he left to come to earth to begin with. And his mission is accomplished. He's already looking beyond the cross. It's what Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 12 that he was able to look at the cross, despise its shame, look beyond it for the joy that was coming with the mission accomplished surrounding the cross. That's what this is all about. He's saying, I'm already looking past the cross. I'm seeing it as a done deal. I'm already seeing myself ascending with you, Father. It's, it's already happened as far as I'm concerned. So the mission's accomplished. I'm returning. But the mission on earth is ongoing. My mission's accomplished, but the mission that I... I am leaving with my, my followers your mission for them. That's ongoing. And with that in mind, that's what the rest of this prayer in this middle part of the passage is all about. So 
beginning in verse 11, we see the theme of mission ongoing. Verses 11 through 19 is where we're going to focus now. Um, And before we do that, I, I want you to understand something else. Just like when there's a military invasion that takes place, you know, there's a group of people that come in, an army, uh, military, whatever, uh, king in the old days or general now, and this military invasion comes in and they conquer uh, a people, they conquer a group, they conquer a country. What's always been the practice is that that leader leaves behind his soldiers and his representatives to occupy the foreign land. You're with me on that, right? That's, that's what happens. That's like military strategy. You conquer, you invade, you conquer, you, you set up shop. You leave a group of people behind as the king or the, the general or whatever moves on. They leave people behind to occupy that land to deal with the ongoing issues that arise and that come up. That's what's going on with what Jesus is praying about now. That's kind of the context of, of the rest of this prayer. And that's the situation. So, verse 11. Jesus had just got done saying, I'm glorified in them, my my followers, the people you gave me. And he says this, and I am no longer in the world. In other words, I'm not going to be here any longer. I'm not going to remain. I won't be here. But they, my disciples, they are in the world. They're they're going to be left. I'm leaving them. They're going to still be here. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, he says. Keep them in your name. And this is really the first time we actually see him requesting something on behalf of his followers. He says, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. I I said earlier in verse 6 that when Jesus says he's manifested the name of the Father and the importance of that is that it's his character, you know, and it's his nature. That's what's tied to the name of God. Well, also God's name is, is his power. God's power is connected to his name. And so that's what Jesus is asking to happen for his disciples. He's saying, I'm not going to be here any longer with them. I'm going to ask you, please keep them in your name like I have done up to this point, up to the point of me returning to be with you. What I have done with them all this time, I'm asking you to do, keep them in your name, which you've given me. The keeping work of God the Father for the disciples, it would not only keep them in Him, which it would and which it does, and that's another amazing thought for us that we have to keep remembering that we don't keep ourselves in God. God does that. Just as we could not save ourselves, we can't do anything to take away God's salvation either. Am I being saved? Am I being right with God in relationship with Him and being His? It has nothing to do with me. It's God keeping us in Him. And that's what Jesus addresses here. He says, keep them in your name just as I have kept them in your name. And so the keeping work of God for the disciples, it keeps them in him, but it goes beyond that. It also keeps them together. It unites them together after the pattern of the unity that always existed with the Father and the Son in eternity. That's what he says here. Notice this again. Let's look at this again. Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So not only is Jesus saying, Father, keep them in yourself, 
Keep them in all you are. Keep them in your character. Keep them in your, your nature. Keep them in your purpose. Keep them in your will. Keep them in your power. But keep them together as you are keeping them in you. And that's always what happens for every believer, for you and me as well. Verse 12 says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That's talking about Judas. That the scripture might be fulfilled, which because it was prophesied for centuries before, that there would be one that would betray him, one of his own, one of his own people, one of his core group, one of his friends would desert him, would betray him to sinful men. And so that's exactly what happened. He says, I've guarded all of them, not one of them except the one prepared to betray me. It's a whole thought in itself and a whole other message. But except for him, no one else was lost. I've kept them all. I've kept them in your name. I've kept them secure in you. I've been revealing all that you are to them. But now, verse 13, now I am coming to you and, and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. So not only is he praying and asking for God to keep his followers in him and to keep them unified together, but he's also asking that they would be truly fulfilled in their joy. And that joy is only going to come as they are unified together. And that's something important for us to consider. Many times I think the reason we have a lack of joy in our body, in our gatherings, in our fellowship together, is because there's just not enough unity. Because our joy as believers in Christ comes from our being unified together as the body of Christ. That's where it comes from. That's, that's why Jesus said, I pray not just that they would be unified with you, they would be unified together, and that that would fulfill joy for them as they are together, as I am not with them anymore, and as I leave them, may their togetherness, may their unity together be the joy that they need. Even while we are in hostile territory, and though there are times where we may feel lost, we don't need to fear because we're never alone and we'll never be lost. And that's because we're secure in the Father, we're secure in the Son, we're secure in the Holy Spirit. But beyond that, God has brought about the body of Christ so that the body would be there for one another. We don't have to be alone. We're not meant to be alone. The Christian life is not a solo journey. It's meant to be a group expedition. That's how we need to treat it. Verse 14, Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We need to not be surprised when we have animosity and hostility from the world because we are clinging to and are anchored to the Word of God, because we hold it up as high and exalted, because we live our lives according to it, because we proclaim it as the only truth. It shouldn't take us by surprise. I mean, Jesus said to his original disciples and to you and me through his Word, he said in John fifteen eighteen, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you, and it hates you because you are mine. 
So many times we just don't believe Jesus's word, you know? We don't really take it at face value. But we should. Um, we shouldn't be surprised. And, and the opposite of that, putting it on a different spin, um, if, if you do not receive Christian, if you do not receive animosity, bitterness, and hatred from the world, if, you, if they just accept you and embrace you as you are, there's no rub there, there's no tension, there's no conflict, then you need to step back and ask if you're really in Christ. You need to step back and take a look at your life and take an objective spiritual inventory and to see if there really is the difference in your life that comes from being in Christ. Because all who truly are in Christ, truly following him, truly are his, they're not going to be accepted and loved by the world. Then he says this, the last few statements here, verses 15 through 19. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You could insert a so here between that verse and verse 17. Sanctify them. So sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus does not, this is so important to note, Jesus does not ask for the Father to make his disciples comfortable or safe or to have an easy time. Because he never promised that. He didn't say, all right, now that they're in me, now that they've believed that you've sent me, they're mine, I want you just to take them out of the world with me. No, he says, leave them here. Leave them here. The mission is ongoing. Leave them here. As you sent me to the world to reveal you and your glory to the world, to redeem the lost, I am sending them into the world to do the same thing. I'm sending them out into the world for them to reveal you to the world, for you to be glorified in and through them just as I was, for you to commission them and sanctify them and set them apart so that they can bring those in the world to you just as I have brought the world to you. So don't take them out of the world. Rather, as they're here in occupied territory, as they're continuing on in hostile enemy territory, what I do pray, Father, is that you protect them and guard them from the evil one. Protect them from from the attacks and the strategies and the schemes and the discouragement of the evil one. Don't take them out. Use them. Use them here. But protect them as you use them. And keep sanctifying them, setting them apart by your truth, which is found in your word. That's exactly what Jesus' prayer still is for you and me today. So many times I think we, we view the Christian life as this very false version of what it's supposed to be, that we should have just an easy time floating along, no problems, no conflict, you know, no issue, because after all, we're saved. But that's never the picture of Christianity in the Bible. It's never what Jesus promised. He said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. It's going to happen. But in that, be of good cheer. Why? Because I've overcome the world. You're going to face some things, but victory is already assured. Victory is yours. And most of the time, we don't 
believe, really, that we have the enemy we do. We don't believe enough that we have an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so what needs to be in our prayer life a lot more is, God, don't, don't just take me out of action. Use me where you've placed me, but please protect me from the evil one so that my use for you, my ministry for you, is not diminished by me falling prey to his attacks. That needs to be our prayer more than it is. Celebrate, church, the fact that your Savior didn't just come and give himself for you, but that before he went to the cross to redeem you, he prayed to the Father on your behalf. He prayed to the Father for you. We're going to explore that in more detail next week as we wrap up John 17 when he actually does pray for all the believers after the disciples. It's amazing. It's, it's just incredible. It's my favorite part of the whole passage. But just know that, that he prayed for you here in, the, in this moment before he went to the cross, and he prays for you moment by moment by moment. He ever lives to intercede for you. Let that thought carry you into Monday and the rest of the week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the powerful prayer of your son on our behalf. Thank you for um, the patterns and the pictures that he, he provided. Thank you for what he teaches us about you in this prayer. It's, it's heavy and it's full of, of riches and of incredible spiritual truth that we should all pay attention to and soak up. We should, we should spend more time. Father, I pray that what we talked about today together, that this message would just be the springboard for people to go home and, and use this as their own private Bible study to go deeper with this passage, with just these verses, with uh, John seventeen six through 19. There's just so much there that they could go even farther with. And I pray that you would you'd motivate that uh, in our lives through the rest of this week, that we might add that to our Bible study or even use that in place of our, our regular one. Please just Help us to stay with this incredible prayer of our Savior. There's just so much for us in it. Thank you for what we've been able to hear, be reminded of, be encouraged by, be challenged by today from this prayer, from your word. May we be different because of it. May we be motivated and encouraged and prepared to go out into the world now because of what we've soaked up. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.